You are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, radical, transformative, empowering birth work in all its nuances. Reproductive justice, racial justice, reclaiming ancestral wisdom, decolonizing the birth space. Here, my friends, we go deep. Join us each month as we chat with activists, scholars, healers, community wellness workers, birthing folk, and beyond to explore topics from their roots to their leaves. Hello, brave ones. Thanks for listening to the Birth Bruja podcast. I'm your host, Eri Guajardo Johnson, and this is episode one, Reclamation of La Bruja. In this episode, we will cover the vision of this podcast as well as feature an interview with scholar May Eloir, where we talk about reclamation work, rape culture, birth stories, honoring our motherline, and more. Lots of juicy beginnings coming up ahead. Stay tuned. Think about the word birth and means to bring forth the beginning, an emergence of something new, a culmination of creation that marks a transition from one realm to another. We birth babies, ideas, businesses, creative projects, new perspectives on life. It touches all realms of our being and includes the impact of the past and the potential of the future. This is why birth, in all of its manifestations, is a rite of passage a profound journey that transforms all those who venture. It simultaneously connects us to those who have birthed before and who are birthing in that exact moment all over the world. It is a journey of mind, body, and spirit, something that cannot be taken away nor given to another. It can leave us in awe of our body and the strength of our spirit. It can take us through despair only to emerge in triumph. It can ignite spiritual commune with ancestors and beings higher than ourselves or tie us even more deeply to those that surround us on the physical realm. It is a promise of struggle, but also a promise of potential. It is an opportunity for us to reveal inner strength of which we've never known. With such potential for meaning and empowerment, why does dominant Western culture approach birth as something dangerous? Why have we historically removed traditions and women-based knowledge that brought holistic approaches to birth and replaced them with pathology and attitudes of fear? What can we do to shift this patriarchal, misogynistic perspective of birth and move towards one of liberation and empowerment? What are the connections between our individual experiences and the collective experience? Thus, we arrive at the heart of the Birth Bruja podcast. The answers to these questions are found in the nuances. As birth workers, we are not supporting our clients in a vacuum of experience that is limited to that of the birth room. The interconnectivity of identity, life experience, culture, and more are vibrant and extremely present in every moment. These conversations are meant to spark curiosity and inquiry, just as they are meant to provide information and perspective. I've intentionally used the term bruja in the naming of this podcast as an act of reclamation and an honoring of my heritage. It means witch in Spanish and is tied to the horrific practices of murder, torture, and genocide by the Catholic Church during the Spanish Inquisition. Bruja was the term used to describe women who practice plant-based medicine, women who held positions of power in their community or who had the audacity to speak out against the church. Countless indigenous peoples were massacred across the Americas under the justification that they were witches and therefore inherently evil. To this day, in many cultures throughout the world with the history of Spanish colonization, the term bruja or brujo is used to justify racist and misogynistic attitudes toward indigenous, black, brown, and female bodies. Here in the States, we share a similar history of persecution with the Salem witch burnings and the shredding away of indigenous and African cultural and spiritual traditions. I use the term bruja to honor this space that historically would have been deemed as dangerous. But maybe this is dangerous. Maybe the awakening of ancestral wisdom, the celebration of black and brown experiences, the reverence of female bodies, maybe this is all dangerous in that it will, without hesitation, change the dominant paradigm. Each month, the Birth Bruja podcast will feature a series of conversations that relate to a single subject. 
The first is to provide education and context about the issue in relation to society as a whole. The second is to go even deeper and explore the issue in relation to birth work. The third is to listen and bear witness to someone's personal experience through storytelling. Throughout the podcast, I will be interviewing folks on a variety of subjects that are most often political, controversial, and extremely personal. We will range from broad topics such as sex and sexuality to the specific, such as supporting black and brown survivors of sexual assault. My goal is threefold. First, to open eyes and encourage those who are new to anti-oppression approaches to birth work. Second, to showcase the radical, transformational contribution of folks work in the front lines. And third, to support the continuing education of birth workers in all of our manifestations. Today's episode will feature scholar May Elowar around the topic of reclamation and the weaving of the personal and the political. May is Lebanese, came to the U.S. as an international student, is a mother of two and a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, California. In this conversation, we reference her work within the Women's Spirituality Program. She now teaches in the Transformative Inquiry Department and is interested in bridging spirituality and religion with social justice activism. A big, big welcome and thank you to Maya Eloward for coming on the show, for being the first interview of uh, the Birth Bruja podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Ari. It was really uh, an amazing surprise to get that email from you and to see what you're doing right now with with your uh, degree in women's spirituality. <laughs> and you're kind of walking it and living it with a program and podcast like this. So congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, when uh, at upon the manifestation or the birth, mm-hmm. shall we say, of this podcast, I immediately thought of you mm-hmm. um, as the guest for this origin episode because I feel that you so powerfully and beautifully mm-hmm. embody the the nuances of walking in political activism and spiritual inquiry, mm-hmm. um, the nuances of um, of focusing on the micro while also having context of the macro and uh, for what I want to bring in my birth work um, it's it's a, an acknowledgement of of all and uh, so when I was thinking about the topics that I would want to to talk about as a foundation for this podcast reclamation intersectionality mm-hmm. um, again nuances I can't say I'm probably gonna say that word a bajillion times here um, but those are all going to be strong foundation. So what? who better than to talk about this than you? So thank <laughs> you, especially for agreeing to do yeah. it for basically a hug and high five. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> thank you. So to begin, mm-hmm. would you mind uh, just sharing a little bit about yourself? What are you doing these days? Where are you from? So um, right now I am a faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I teach in a program called Transformative Inquiry. We have a master's in transformative leadership and a PhD in transformative studies. And um, the word nuances comes in and the word transdisciplinary comes in where we look at the world. It's an inquiry-based program. And we ask questions about how can we do this differently? How can we do it you know, in a way that's sustainable, in a way that ensures the survival of all? And we don't limit ourselves to disciplines we search for answers everywhere. You know, all ways of knowing, all areas of study, all peoples, all life, you know, we look everywhere. And so it provides this holistic, transdisciplinary space of trying to come up with answers and better questions maybe to ask. Mm. So that's what I do professionally. Um, I am originally from Lebanon. I came to the U.S. as a graduate student, Mm. and then I stayed here, and I've been in San Francisco for about 20 years, and I'm the mother of two teenage sons. So, Thank you. Mm -hmm. So you said something that's already so juicy, which Mm -hmm. is ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that, please? Absolutely. So um, coming into academia as a younger person, So I finished my master's a long time ago when I was in my early 20s, and it was in political science because I thought, you know, I wanted to 
be an activist. I wanted to make change in the world, and I thought, you know, politics was the way to go. And so you go into a social science, and you um, study, and you um, learn theory, you know, and you learn about structures and institutions and the world. And you go into the world, and you start to work. You know, I worked in Washington, D.C. for about five years in various political lobby groups. And you realize that all you're doing is um, reinventing the wheel. Hmm. You know, the content might be different for your group, but the way you're going about making change is the same as those in power that you are trying to critique and you're crying, trying to change, you know? And so um, that led me down another path. Well, where do we get the knowledge? Or how can we know what is needed to make a change? Like if I'm looking at something and I, I, I know I'm feeling uncomfortable about what's going on, even though I totally believe in the issue, but the way it's being managed and the way the activism is being organized or the way it's being led, you know, how can I trust that I know that there's something not right here? You know, where do I go in my body, in my heart, to get that kind of knowledge, a different way of knowing? And that is eventually what led me down to this road of looking at, well, where does spirituality, where does what I believe fit in to what I'm actually doing as an activist, you know? And when you open up this thing, what do I believe? Then to me, that opens up this whole like, well, what do I know, you know? And where do I find the things that I know? How do I come to know certain things? And this has led me down this kind of spiritual path that's integrated with my politics, where um, there's activism on the outside, but there's a deep, reflexive, coming to know for myself on the inside, going on all the time. Yes. Ah, yeah. so good. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I see that very vibrantly in birth work, this mm -hmm. struggle um, about, the struggle against what feels like a hierarchy, mm -hmm. a top-down, right? Like um, needing science and statistics and folks with degrees to, mm -hmm. to validate things that have already been expressed as valuable mm -hmm. through the storytelling, right? Or mm -hmm. through the lived experiences. And um, and to go back right to this topic of reclamation work, I think mm -hmm. that's a really big part is to a, acknowledge all the ways of knowing and mm -hmm. acknowledge them all is valuable and not from a top down. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's so many ways that we can go into this, right? But the professionalization mm -hmm. of birth work, just like the professionalization of, of nonprofit or um, yeah. of community work, right? The nonprofit right. industrial complex. Right. I think that's going to be the struggle for us is simultaneously existing in structures that are problematic. Mm -hmm. And so, right, existing because that's what's in the in the here and now while simultaneously mm -hmm. trying to transform in a meaningful way as exactly as you mentioned mm -hmm. that's not perpetuating continuing to perpetuate uh problematic right. patterns and, and right. structures um thank you yes gosh my michigan background's coming out i really want to high five you right now <laughs> um so to so in similar in similar lanes, uh, mm -hmm. if we can talk about reclamation work, sure. what does it mean to you? How would you define it, or how would you explain it? So, for me, initially, if I want to say how I come to reclamation work is coming to voice mm. for myself, mm. reclaiming who I who I am to begin with. You know, um, being raised as female you know, under various patriarchal structures and various places I've lived in my life um, has, ha I've, you know, ha has had its share of um, sort of silencing, has, has uh, created a, a sort of structure, a norm that validates um, certain people, certain ways of knowing, certain ways of being, certain norms, right, mm. that don't always privilege someone that is growing up female, you know. So, um, again, it's the first reclamation for me is a reclamation of self mm. as female and what that entails, you know, that, um, yes, I, I do have a voice, and yes, my voice is valid, and yes, I do know something, you know, about something. And um, 
that's to me where it starts. And then for me, the personal is always political. Mm-hmm. You know, the personal is always political. So um, um, how can I anyway reclaim my voice in a system that doesn't allow that to happen? So for me to be able to reclaim my own voice, I really need to look at the system at the same time and all women, you know. And so um, this led me down this path of looking at, so um, what has happened to women over the centuries? When did women um, lose their voice? Mm. When did women lose power under patriarchy? You know, and there are many, many theories coming out around that. Pre, you know, Christianity, going back archaeologically with the work of Maria Gimbutas Mm. and um, many, many others. And um, coming through, you know, through Europe, through colonization, what that did to women's voices, um, the witch burnings and the Inquisition before that, you know, enslavement, Mm. you know, and uh, patriarchy. So really kind of deconstructing these structures Mm -hmm. to see, well, what happened? When did we lose that power Um, to be, um, to know, to speak up, um, to be change makers, to be leaders? When did we lose that power and how can we reclaim it? What do we need to reclaim it? What are the tools that we need to reclaim it? And so, again, are we going to use the same tools to reclaim our power that were used to oppress us, which brings up Audre Lorde Mm -hmm. and the master's tools? Mm -hmm. Or are we as women uh, going to um, create our own tools to reclaim our voice and reclaim our space? You know, tools that don't perpetuate the violence that we are struggling against, tools that don't perpetuate oppression and equality and justice. You know, so what are these tools, you know? And um, and this is where ways of knowing comes in again, you know, multiple ways of knowing beyond the way we have been indoctrinated to know, right. you know, and um, really um, questioning structures at their roots so that we don't perpetuate these structures is really important. And then another really exciting thread here is reclamation is... Some might call it remembrance. You know, Mm -hmm. can we remember who we once were? Can we bring that forward? Or can we stop and look at ourselves now and all the glory and beauty and power that we embody as we kind of shed the internalized patriarchal oppression? Who are we? You know, and what do we want? Right. So that kind of reflexive um, gaze, if you want. Mm You know, that also looks at how are we still engaging in these systems that we're trying to change? Honestly, really, like, look, like, how am I still perpetuating and how am I changing? And how do I create a tension as we are like fish in water in these systems, you know, which you were talking about? So it's not to me, it's not like science against anything. Right. It's science and everything, you know, based on whatever value we hold. There's a place for science. Science is amazing. But how do we, what is the value that we hold as we use science? Right. And and what are we trying to, what are we diminishing as we use science? And how can we bring it all for the good of all, Mm -hmm. integrate it all for the good of all? Uh, What you said just there is something that I think in the Women's Spirituality Mm -hmm. Program, Apparently, shout out to the Women's Spirituality Program at CIAS. It's probably going to come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this phrase that we say so many times, which is both and. Right. And um, right as we are drawing inward to understand ourselves more fully, to understand uh, the authenticity mm-hmm. of us as individuals, to simultaneously then right extend outwards and to understand the context of why and how we got here. Mm-hmm. And particularly... In these times, especially uh, especially in the states, and I can I guess speak more specifically about myself, uh, the nuances of racism and mm-hmm. colonialism and patriarchy, they all are incredibly present and and alive um, in in our experiences. But then they have also been alive in the previous generation, the previous generation, and so a lot of my work within 
spirituality and social justice inquiry has been navigating being biracial, right? Mm-hmm. Coming from a mother uh, uh, with Mexican heritage, knowing that in that heritage, uh, there's also Spanish heritage. And, and particularly with my grandmother, she always celebrated the whiteness, celebrated the, the European heritage, and then squashed and was um, really uh, very much against the indigenous blood. Um, so, so knowing that within even my brown side, there's very mm-hmm. much a play of, of uh, oppressor and oppressed. And then similarly with my father. My father's um, predominantly German descent, but yet his family comes from extreme poverty. Um, so again, those nuances, uh, being able to identify them within ourselves, again, so we don't perpetuate, but then also holding space for the way that they transform regionally, generationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the Bay, there's a lot of power in bringing name to things. And also, I think sometimes we get so caught up in this really uh, organized, concise way of looking at identity, so that there's these tiny little boxes that sometimes we forget that to give room for that wholeness for contradiction. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the more messy, the more gray area, mm-hmm. the things that we're never going to neatly uh, organize within this lifetime, right? It just mm-hmm. constantly changes and evolves. Um, so, yeah, I think reclamation work for me and from what I'm vibing from you is a lifelong journey of mm-hmm. constantly um, having a process of going inward, of, of finding that 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 meaning uh, that's untouchable, right? Whether someone says, oh, that feeling in your heart that you think is your ancestor, you're just made it up. Mm-hmm. So whether, whether or not someone validates it or invalidates it, finding that aspect of ourselves that's untouchable. And from that fiery, abundant, unconditional mm-hmm. place, connect, making connections. Right. And, right. And finding that place, it's also like the core of creativity is what mm-hmm. I call it. And then you look at the word create itself, and you're talking about birth. We're creating. So good. And it's the, so good. It's, it's the core of creativity, that space deep inside of us that's untouchable is where we create from, you know, authentically create from, not, repro- not you know, yeah. um, produce, but create. Yes. You know, which is a different nuanced way of looking at birth, perhaps, you know, from that core. Oh, man. Yeah. So to like (laughs) ring it back in. um, So in around the topic of reclamation work, Mm -hmm. which is a topic of the show. Yeah. um, (laughs) Can you please speak upon the Motherline Project? Absolutely. And so um, I did go when I I was a student at CIS before I became faculty there and I graduated from the Women's Spirituality Program. Another shout out to that (laughs) amazing program. And I taught in that program for a while. And in one of the first classes um, that are offered, students are um, required to uh, do a motherline project, and the idea behind that is that in a patriarchal um, society, we uh, come to identity through our father lines, through our fathers and grandfathers, and the way women change their name, and the way um, lineages are um, handed down. And even inheritance laws, we we look at the father line, you know, and the mother lines and get forgotten and not acknowledged, you know, in that process. And so we want to reclaim and re-enliven the mother line. And so students uh, begin researching back uh, along their mother line. They look at their mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and go as far back as they can. And so what has always sort of intrigued and compelled me and drawn me to this project is that as you hear these personal stories and these personal histories of mother lines, with each story spoken and told, you are really talking about culture and society and history 
and everything that was going on around the story that impacted that story. So you're really learning about what happened in the world through these singular personal stories, which is incredibly powerful, just incredibly powerful to hear the journeys, the journeys that grandmothers took, the hardships that grandmothers faced, so that the granddaughter could be sitting in graduate school Getting a degree in something called women's spirituality is um, so inspiring is not not the word. It's just uh, moving. I mean, there's tears and mm. laughter and joy and connections and differences and learning. And this like building of community of women as you see the struggles and as you see the the um, the power to survive and thrive, and as you see the beauty, and as you see the body and the love, you know, and the music mm. and the food. Um, somebody once did a motherline uh, project using recipes that were handed down. And with each recipe, there was a story. And the story might seem personal, but it told the story and history of the world at the same time. So reclaiming the mother line is um, incredibly powerful uh, on a personal level for each woman that has done this, that I've experienced. And it's powerful on a social level as it causes transformation. And I can speak to my own mother line. So I entered the program uh, exactly one year after my own mother had passed away. And my mother passed away pretty young. She was only 55 when she was very sick. She had MS. And so a year later, I was in class, and I was told to write my mother line. And um, it was, um, I could not have thought of a better tribute to my mother's life than writing that mother line a year after she passed away. Mm. I could not have found a better tribute. I could not have found a better gift to give my children than that mother line that I wrote. And so for that, I, I think the mother line is a necessity for every woman and every man. Yeah, I was just going to say. I and think, every child, yeah. 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 Um, one of the most profound realizations for me when I uh, did that project with you was seeing all the ways in which even as a quote-unquote like conscious, mm -hmm. you know, strong, empowered feminist woman, um, identifying all the ways that I've been deeply encoded to devalue things, um, to, to place value on, on edu uh, education from institutions, to place value on certain personality characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, I think seeing the ways that growing up, for example, um, I kind of saw some of the, the cultural things on my mom's side is more frivolous and mm -hmm. emotional and dramatic. And then for some reason, valuing the cultural um, things of my father's side a little bit more because it was less colorful and less uh, less communication, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and more, I felt more controlled and polished. And so I didn't realize I had that belief or that value until that paper. And wow. then also seeing how easy it was how easy it was easier to access information about, as you mentioned, the father line mm -hmm. um, than it was the mother line. How I had to dive deep and ask the same questions multiple times to to be extracting this information. And there was so much hush hush, mm -hmm. um, particularly around topics because I asked much around. Uh, experiences of menstruation and childbirth and female bodies. That was something that was really rich for me at the time and still is. Um, and so to see how much shame has mm -hmm. been has been transposed, but then how within that culture of shame, how it's tied into patriarchy, how it's tied into mm -hmm. trying to keep our daughters safe, mm -hmm. um, how, again, multifaceted that that belief was and then even that being said having a more recent conversation with my mom seeing how each generation of women believed that they were um raising their daughter in a radical way mm -hmm. right like my grandma told my mom like i'm you know you're much more free and liberated than i was 
And then meanwhile, my mom is like, you're much more free and liberated <laughs> than I was. And I'm probably going to say the same thing to my child. Um, but then in retrospect, looking back and being like, wow, even besides the language, what's what I learned through body language, through the mm-hmm. subtle things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's also something that we've talked right. before is, is just about as, excuse me, we talked about this before and also in, you touched upon it earlier today um, about the reclamation of female bodies. Right. Like what does that mean to be able to feel okay, let alone good in your mm-hmm. skin, to not be apologetic about mm-hmm. the literal physical space that you take up? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I can go off in that, but I want to pause here. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind actually sharing just a little bit around what you've seen regarding the reclamation of female bodies um, within uh, the Motherland Project or, or the other similar right. work? I mean, you said something very interesting that um, we want to stay safe. We want our daughters to be safe, you know? And so when one asks that question, the other question is, well, what's the danger? Mm-hmm. You know, what are we afraid of? You know, and so, um, and, and that is that is a huge question because on the surface it looks like yes every generation is more free than the generation before it so why are we still afraid right so why are we still afraid Mm -hmm. you know I don't believe we've gone to the root of it and um, I mean I have this this story that I say about Lebanon okay and it's it's kind of connected maybe not Um, so uh, when I go back and I say something like, well, I want to, I teach women's studies, women's issues, women's spirituality, women, 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 feminism. People say, well, why do you do that? Look at you. You live in America. You teach. You're free. You travel. You know, you're free, right? I'm like, well, you consider me free? Yeah, well, but under Lebanese family law, um, there are many ways that I'm not free, Right. As someone who has two children from a non-Lebanese father, I don't have the right to give them citizenship, Lebanese citizenship, as a mother who married outside, right? However, I can wear a string bikini and go swim on the beach, and that's free. Right. So thinking of the body as a commodity, as an object, but then the real rights that we need as something that we still haven't claimed or gotten. So that's one way the body has been kind of used to say you're free, but the danger, the danger is there, you know? And so um, with mother, with motherline um, papers and motherline stories, um, the, 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 the most painful ones are ones where you see an intergenerational pattern of physical and sexual abuse of women that exists in some families. That that comes up so often. It, it's 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 huge, mm. you know, and um, you know, the grandmother suffered from it, the mother suffered from it, the student has suffered from it. So how do we stop those cycles? You know, and it brings me to something else that you and I talk about a lot, restorative justice Mm. as a way of healing, you know. So um, hurt people hurt people, right? right? So when my body has been um, hurt and when my body has been oppressed and my body has been violated and I'm walking around hurt, you know, perhaps I don't recognize or um, can't speak up for another violation that's happening. Or perhaps I violate. You know, how do we stop these cycles? Right. That's one way this has come up around women's bodies. And I mean, why, again? Um, We live in patriarchy. I mean, it's really, oh, we can keep pointing to that. But I'm not talking about, I'm talking about patriarchy as a system and a structure. Right. You know, that, you know, has man and woman as its other or his other. But not woman as a standalone, you know, man and its other, right. basically, as and it owns the other and decides for the other, you know. That's what patriarchy has done, and I think we're still there. 
I yeah. think we're still there as property, as um, defined by, you know, mm-hmm. and um, we, there's been waves of resistance against it now with the, you know, hashtag Me Too and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just keep chipping away until this danger, you know, the danger that we exist in a rape culture um, dissipates at right. some point, perhaps, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just want to reiterate something that you said, mm-hmm. which is patriarchy isn't a us versus them. It's not right. like men no. versus women. Patriarchy is something that all genders mm-hmm. can be uh, mm-hmm. strengthening and participating in. Um, and and so much uh, came up when you were speaking. And one of it was just um, I had a, uh, a training this past weekend around uh, prenatal yoga and a lot of the topic that came up was around the inherent distrust of female bodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, one way that could look like, which we've seen with, you know, um, specifically in rape culture, is that it's the, you know, drawing from, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian roots, right, which is that sin is inherently within the female body. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if she were to inspire lust or or craze, it's, it's her fault, mm-hmm. right? So policing of our bodies because we're inherently dangerous in that way. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, viewing back to birth work, there's this inherent distrust that our bodies are like death traps for a baby, mm-hmm. right? It's particularly when we are looking at um, birth within a medical institution, um, there's, uh, especially when you get into the birth room, there's a lot of of interventions, there's a lot of monitoring, um, and again, it's just this inherent this inherent feeling that, um, oh, you know, we're going to keep an eye in case we need to rescue baby from mm-hmm. your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and how big that is in terms of the meaning around birth and also in terms of the strategy. I mean, if I had a dollar for how many um, how many clients I've had, particularly women who come from like an engineering or a tech sort of mindset, um, where they go in with so much fear, one big one is pain. Mm-hmm. Um, this fear that they won't be able to cope with it, which is legit, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, and then the other one is is this fear that that they're going to do something wrong, mm-hmm. that they're going to sleep a wrong way, that they're going to eat something wrong, thinking that one action is going to just totally transform this experience and it's going to be all on them. And um, and again, re- returning to this like to this concept of other ways of knowing. Right. That's what I yeah. Exactly. The body knows. Yes. The mother's body knows. But we've been conditioned to not trust that knowing. And the storytelling piece. Exactly. It's like a radical notion these days to be hearing birth stories. And it's like, how is it that I'm a grown-ass woman and that I've only recently heard my birth story with my mom? Like, that seems weird to me. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I have two birth stories. I have two children. And um, it's it's... We, I did not trust my body with my first child. Mm-hmm. I did not trust my body. I did not know what was happening. And I ended up having a C-section with my first child. And so I do have gratitude to science and mm-hmm. Western medicine mm-hmm. because we would both not have survived. But also there was a, a, there was a, a point where an intervention, if I had listened to my body, would not have led us that far because... Um, and it's okay to share the birth story, right? Yes. So um, I was Jew, and I would go to my doctor, quote-unquote, every other day, and the baby wasn't coming, and I would tell my doctor that, you know, I think I'm I'm losing water mm. because I wake up at night and I have to change my underwear a few times, and there's water all the time. And the doctor, who was a male at that time, said to me, oh, if your water breaks, you'll know it. It just gushes out. And I believed that. So then the baby wouldn't come out, and I had to be induced. So I go to the hospital on a Saturday morning to be induced, and they put the Pitocin. And every time I um, have a um, contraction, contraction um, the baby's heartbeat would stop. Oof. You know? And then the doctor came in and said, well, we're going to um, break your water. And he stuck something to break my water. There was no water. Mm. There was, he was dry inside. Right. Right? And I, I knew that something, I knew that I was, I knew, but I didn't know. Right. 
you know, and I didn't know to ask anyone else because I had trusted the doctor. And so then I had an emergency C-section when they found that out because mm. we were both like suffocating, you know. With my second child, it was different because I'd had that experience. So um, I, I had a unique situation in that I was pregnant with my second child and taking care of my mother mm. who had very progressive multiple sclerosis. So I didn't go to any checkups. It was, I was healthy. It was fine. Was this here in the States? Or? Part Lebanon, but they were both born in the States. Okay. Like six months in Lebanon, I came here the last three months. I hadn't had an ultrasound. He was fine. You know, no biggie. So it, I was about, you know, it was the month that I was due. And I went to my doctor. I changed doctors, of course. I had this amazing woman doctor now. She wasn't there. And I said, you know, I have pain up around my chest area, like something's pushing. And I had this young, Stanford-educated, mm. whatever, woman doctor, not my doctor, she was just there subbing. And she said, I said, is the baby breached? And she said, no, I don't think so. And she touched and everything. I'm like, something's not right. No, you're fine. So I walk out and I'm paying or, you know, yeah. paperwork. And I tell the receptionist, I don't feel good. Can I see someone else? I knew to say that. So, so I don't important. feel good. She said, well, we don't have any doctors. We have the midwife here. I'm like, yes. So I went and I sat with the midwife. She put her hands on my belly and two minutes later said, this baby's breech. We got to get the baby out. The baby came out the next day. Mm-hmm. Had I had a contraction with a breech baby, I don't know what would have happened. So. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that story. Yeah. Uh, so many things. A, for folks who are who are new-ish mm-hmm. to, to birth work, yes. Uh, breaking of the bag of waters is not like in Hollywood where it's just right. a big gush. That's well, what I was waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. It can happen, but mm-hmm. in my experience and also from what I, I read, uh, very rarely does it happen like that. <laughs> Typically speaking, it's uh, more of a slow trickle mm-hmm. um, as as you experienced. Right. Uh, so just want to note on that. And then second, yes. So if I could wave a magic wand um, where from now all of all of the clients that ever, you know, engage with from now on, it would be that they know that they have a choice with medical providers, mm-hmm. right? Because of the power complex, because of we place value on professional education and mm-hmm. institutions, we inherently believe that others are experts of our bodies and mm-hmm. they are experts of this experience, right? It's like, oh, I'm pregnant. I've never done this before. Therefore, you, doctor, mm-hmm. right? Putting all of the power in their hands, which is understandable because right. that's how we're often programmed. That's exactly what I did. Yep. Yep. So again, totally is understandable. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remember that we have choice and particularly around birth. This isn't just a casual thing, right? If there's a time to be more picky regards to doing work to find a medical provider that a you feel good around Mm -hmm. right like their personality makes you feel good their attentiveness makes you feel good and then on top of Mm -hmm. their approach to to work right is within your value system birth is a time to do it right and particularly for folks in the bay we're really lucky to have a variety of resources within medical institutions um you know, one hospital to another has very different cultures. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of hospitals around here who offer midwife support within the hospital. Mm-hmm. So you actually have each shift has mm-hmm. an on-call midwife and an on-call OB. So, right, kind of perfect, uh, best of both worlds, right. as they often say. Right. Um, and and maybe another episode we can talk more about the nuances of the differences between midwifery care and uh, traditional OB care. Um, so there's that. But then also for folks who don't feel safe within the um, the medical institutions, which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Especially we know how historically um, folks of color, right, mm-hmm. don't receive the same treatment. They're not trusted. There's a there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, publicity these days around the horrific um, mortality rate for black babies right. and black mothers, um, which in the Bay actually also there's a specific study study to our area mm-hmm. that's really really horrifying mm-hmm. and also like, okay, let's fucking do something about this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, uh, those of us in the Bay who don't necessarily feel comfortable within medical institutions to know that there are resources around home birth or mm-hmm. there's resources around birth centers. Um, again, we, we'll talk more about those in other episodes. <laughs> it's like so, so rich. Um, but yeah, so to draw it all back, 
uh, it's important that we, as birthing people, however, however you are, to first return to your center, to know what's important to you, to know what's meaningful to you, and to prioritize that, mm -hmm. to value that experience. And then from there to make choices on medical providers, on lifestyle changes or things that we want to weave in. Um, that's how we cultivate empowering birth experiences that set really profound beginnings right mm -hmm. into parenthood maybe mm -hmm. for the first time or for the second time oh man i really meant that okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um so we are unfortunately dwindling into the end mm -hmm. of our call or of our, our conversation um but as for a last question i just wanted to ask um in terms of advice or heart-to-heart mm -hmm. heart-to-heart uh, heart transmission of wisdom that you would like to offer to folks who have never given birth to a baby mm -hmm. before or folks who have never supported a loved one through that experience. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of transmission of meaning would you give? Well, the first piece of wisdom is um, pay attention to your body and to what your body is telling you and trust that your body is telling you something throughout the process, you know? Um, and to do that, um, get to know your body. Mm. You know, pay, like when you pay, get to know your body, some people can journal about how they feel, for example. Um, observe, you know, sensations. Don't ignore them. Don't ignore sensations. It's, oh, well, yeah, that happens, and this has a scientific name, and that's what it means, you know? And like you were saying, Ari, we're lucky that there are resources that can help us make sense of some of these sensations sometimes and what they mean. And not to just um, uh, um, take someone's word, someone who's not in your body, as the truth and the truth for you. You know, to really, really, really get to know your body and your sensations. And... Um, it is such a beautiful experience once the baby is in your arms. I mean, there is nothing like it in the world. And if I was to do it all over again, you know, I would want that experience to start from the minute I knew I was pregnant. There is nothing like it in the world. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful experience. So how can you celebrate it, which is not very much what the media and, you know, normative culture tells us. You don't really celebrate being pregnant. You get fat, your legs are swollen, you're tired, um, you get might get pimples. I don't know what all these myths are, you know, but how can you celebrate it from the minute you know? And um, because it's really, um, it's magic. And can yeah. continue to celebrate right. it even right. even after baby comes right. to to right. have that celebration right. extend to our bodies to continue to, to extend to our bodies in the postpartum period. Right, yeah. right? having that patience, mm -hmm. having that reverence, just the same way that we celebrate what your body can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, to create life, you know, and then push the life, and and you know, it's a celebration. That's that's my best piece of advice. Don't wait till you hold the baby. Start from day one. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so, so much thank for you, being Ari, here. And, and good luck thank with the you. podcast. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, for folks who are interested in learning more about May and her work uh, and ways to reach out to her, we'll include that information in okay. the show notes. So Great. thank you. Thank you, Ari. In the past, they burned us because they thought we were witches. Just because we knew what to do with herbs outside of the kitchen because we knew how to dance, how to seduce, how to pray. Because we moved with the cycles of the moon. In the past, they burned us alive because they knew that we are witches. So now we cast spells with our mouths, pieces of our hearts spill out, it is incredible the power of a woman who is not afraid to say no. No, we won't sit any longer while you ponder on our rights, on our rights to give or not give life, on our rights to make another woman our wife, on our rights to be safe, to get paid an equal wage, to have a voice, 
you know, in a place where we might actually make a change. It is incredible. The amount of ways that they have slayed just to keep us small. If they could have, they probably would have burned us all, but they couldn't with fire, so they did it with words, laid down laws to determine the amount of our worth. They kept us in contracts, they separated our circles, erased us from pages and made labor-saving devices our saviors. It is incredible how quickly knowledge can fade, how much effort was invested to lead us astray. But we will not come quietly. Well, there's another thing they've tried to take away. You know, our rights to exclaim our orgasms ecstatically. Mm -mm. We will not come quietly. We will open our mouths and let our spells spill out, cast poetic prayers into the night so that every woman can hear the howl of her sister's delight, reminding her that her voice deserves to be heard. Let her jaw drop, let her shame stop, let her body scream under the self-pleasure of what it means to be a woman who can speak freely. You see, words, they carry meaning. And they have fooled us for so long into believing that no means yes. So much so that I'm almost impressed, except, well, I finally discovered that they're right. So I've claimed back that no as mine. Because every no I throw against their forces is another yes I retain for my own self-worth. It is a spell I cast for my own protection. It is incredible. The power of a woman who is not afraid to say no. And this old witch? I'm done with broomsticks. I'm done with know your place. This witch knows that some knowledge just won't fade. That every woman is my sister. That through the hubble and the bubble and the toil and the trouble we grow stronger when we cast our spells together. That we entered the fire and now we rise from the ashes and we are holding our candles and lighting our matches until the night becomes lighter and our voices can grow because we have remembered we are witches and we have learned to say no. We just listened to the poem Witches, written and performed by Felici Malay. The music you heard on today's show is Green and Gold by Leanne Lajavas. Deep gratitude to May Elawai for being the inaugural guest on the Birth Bruja podcast. I've been your host, Eric Guajardo Johnson. The Birth Bruja podcast is produced by Catherine Petru of We Rise. Be sure to check out show notes for links and resources. Follow us on SoundCloud and help us expand the impact of this work. Until next time, my friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude. <laughs>